Today on CityCast Denver, why is it that Denverites get so upset when that one special place in the city changes or goes away? Today on the show, we're talking about a couple of biggies. There's a juicy story out about growing pains at the tattered cover, and Tom's Diner is going to reopen as a 1970s-era Las Vegas-style cocktail bar? What? Today is Friday, January 21st, 2022. I'm Paul Caroli, and this is CityCast Denver. Welcome back to CityCast Denver, the show about the city that is apparently going through a coffee lid shortage. Bree, look what I'm dealing with. <laughs> I now. was wondering why you had a soda, a pop top yeah. on your espresso. Where did you get that espresso cup? Also looks super generic and Yeah, weird. the guy apologized. He was very, like, it's the place on Lincoln, Patty, you probably know it. Of, uh, it's like Cap City... If it's City Bakery, that's a great spot. City Bakery. It was nice. Very nice guy. Uh, No lids, though. Well, listeners, you can already tell that it's a special day for us here. We're we're speaking in person, which is rare and nice. Uh, Bree, our regular host, is with us. Hey, hey. And also, we have a special guest, Westward editor and founder, Patty Calhoun. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here and have you here. Yay. Yeah. We're here in Westward (laughs) Studios. It's beautiful. This is a new new office for you all, right? We moved in the middle of the pandemic, so very few people have ever been here. But before we did, we'd commissioned all these great artists to do murals around the office oh my so we have about 10 street murals through the office which so far only a few people have ever enjoyed <laughs> well maybe we should take a picture of this one because it is really quite it's beautiful. a lovely space uh the artist looks like lindy zimmer oh lindy this zimmer this is amazing oh you'll recognize almost everyone on i know these i need to wander around and check it out and we're going to do another we're right by the old colorado institute of arts we're at 13th and lincoln and there's a new huge building going up right behind us but we're going to have a mural there too oh nice which we're kind of getting as a present because as soon as we moved in this building flooded (gasps) (laughs) because of that construction (laughs) well we are not here to talk about flooding and construction instead we're here to talk about a couple of really interesting stories that came up this week the first one this is this was a beast. This was something that people have been talking about, but we got some new insight thanks to Patty, your former culture editor here at Westward, Kyle Harris, who's now at Denverite. He wrote this big long piece about the tattered cover, Denver's iconic independent bookstore. Um, and he sort of laid out the whole story of what the tattered cover has been through the last couple of years and really since its beginnings in the 70s tracking it from the First Amendment champion Joyce Meskis's ownership through her transfer to the two longtime employees, I think, um, and then their sale to the current ownership group led by one Kwame Spearman, former CityCast Denver guest. But I think what was really interesting about this piece is that Kyle talked to current and former employees who are disgruntled, I think, is probably the best way to say it about this transition. And he used those interviews as a way to to explore this bigger change that this important institution is going through. And I think it's a perfect topic for us to, to get into because we all have strong feelings about the Tattered cover, right? I mean, I know I do. Bree, I know you do. Yeah. Patty, what's your relationship with Tattered like? Well, 
a longtime customer. So Westward started in 77, and we went back, and by then they were one of our early advertisers. And they were the oh. second owner at that point. That was Joyce Meskus. But for us, Tattered Cover has always just been intrinsic to the city, and you yeah. can't imagine the city without Tattered Cover. And Joyce ran it and created a legend herself because a First Amendment champion across the country, she did amazing things. Then it came time for her to retire, and you think about how the book industry was changing. And not to correct you, but she didn't sell it to former employees. She actually kind of hand-picked people who'd approached her, who'd always wanted to get in the bookstore business. They were more in the book publishing business. And they moved here to take over and train with her to take it over. So, and it just didn't work out for a variety of reasons. One, the pandemic. Two, and Kyle brings this up, the whole issue when they sent out their statement about the during the Black Lives Matter mm-hmm. time protests, when right. they were not, they said they were going to not take a stand because that was kind of what Tattered would do. Tattered would say, all First Amendment, we're not taking a stand. We'll sell the Anarchist Handbook. We'll sell anything. There's a great thing in Kyle's piece about Joyce Meskus how she'd sell penthouse to an underage kid. I thought that was such an interesting That was one of the anecdote. greatest things because the First Amendment isn't easy. It's not pretty. It's not pretty to sell penthouse to a 12-year-old. Right. You're going to lose probably a lot of your customers if they find out, but that's the First Amendment. Well, and that was her philosophy. I think you also make a great point. I'm just thinking, Patty, about how um, Joyce handpicked the owners to train them sort of under her. And I think about like the Mercury Cafe, Marilyn McGinnity just did that um, with Danny Newman. And like sometimes that transfer of ownership, no matter how much you've learned from that person, doesn't necessarily mean... It's going to work. Exactly. Or it's going to be the same place. And so by the end of 2020, it was clear that Tattered might disappear altogether. Yeah. That the new owners weren't going to be able to keep it alive. And that's when, and it was several months before the story broke about this group of Denverites who had gone in to buy it. Um, People had really been looking to see how they could save the Tattered cover. Yeah, I mean, it was clearly in trouble. I mean, everyone says it's on the road to bankruptcy and nobody wants that. Like you said, it's this... Then running a bookstore in a pandemic? When bookstores already were in trouble. Yeah. So. yeah. So, well, let's let's get into a bit of what these current and past employees said about the new ownership group and Kwame Spearman in particular. They said, and I'm quoting from his piece now, uh, these staff members say the store is growing too fast and becoming too corporate. Old timers are being pushed out. Staff are overworked. Wages are too low and they criticize CEO Kwame Spearman's management style. Brie, what was your response? What was your thought when you when you read that? I mean, anytime anything grows and changes, it's going to be uncomfortable for the people that have been there for a long time. Um, I think the thing that was frustrating to me was learning that it, it sort of, throughout its tenure as a bookstore, has not necessarily paid competitively. And that was frustrating to me because I think about how much the community aspect of Tattered Cover is why I go there. The experts, the people that work there, they know books. And um, I don't I don't know, that kind of bummed me out. Um, but again, I, I don't know what it's like to run a retail operation in a pandemic. So I can't imagine it's easy. Yeah. 
Yeah. Patty? Well, and some of it, a lot of those growth plans were set in motion before the new ownership group came in. Hmm. So the Westminster store, which is supposed to open this week, that was in motion before the new ownership group. The McGregor Square move, I mean, we all miss the 16th Street store. You can't help but miss it. But that was already in motion to move into McGregor. And I've been pleasantly surprised that McGregor is as nice as it is and that people who go through that crazy new development actually go into a bookstore. I mean, that is a greater good. And they're bringing programs there. And I hope they're bringing some new audiences as well as the old. You don't want to lose the old audiences. I think the most interesting character in that story is the man who runs the McGregor Square store who's been there forever. And they were talking about, you know, the old traditional ways they would move from store to store as all the staffers would get together and carry books. Yeah, the bookworm. We were talking about, we were going to go record it last (laughs) year. We were going to record the sound, but it didn't happen. It's one thing when you're a small independent to carry books for Mm -hmm. people because you love it. And then it's another thing maybe when you now feel you're owned by a corporation, even if it's a locally owned corporation, maybe they need to have some other people move the books and pay them. Yeah, Yeah. I, I can imagine seeing like someone like Kent Teary CEO of DeVita coming in to be part of this ownership group. This guy's a multi-millionaire scumbag. Is that the guy that like dresses he up in like medieval a stuff? He and swings. Like, yeah, one it is. For all, well, he's all not there one. anymore. He's not at DeVita anymore. Oh, oh okay. no. He's not? But that was one. No, they're like, really, it's a really interesting lineup of people who invested in this. And again, it's locals. It is not primarily black ownership. And that's something Kwame talked about, which was when I first saw the press release, and it was here, and I'd known who other members of the group were, and I'm like, these people are not black. And I said, and Kyle, I will say, just like other people, was about to put a headline, largest black-owned bookstore, and I go, no, this is not the largest black-owned bookstore. You've got an owner who's black who's going to be running it, but that's that's really a bad message, and it's wrong. And yeah. we saw how that blew up, and Kwame talked about yeah, it. Yeah, I was going to say, he talked about that in the piece. They talked about him being on a panel at Denver Startup Week and saying that was probably one of my biggest regrets was making that sort of statement, which I understand because there's a long history of black-owned bookstores that are like, hey, wait a minute, what about us, you know? Yeah. Which is a tough balance for him, you know? I think we should go a little deeper on this legacy business aspect because, Patty, here we are at Westward. Westward itself is a legacy business founded in the 70s, just like the tattered cover, and it's going through this huge transition. How, how do you feel about, do you feel like a responsibility to the community beyond the the people who are a part of the organization itself more to the community in a lot of ways because people come and go hello kyle harris i mean people are going to move Bree. people are going to write for us and they might leave us and you know that's great if they are going and doing wonderful things for the city or sometimes this country or sometimes the world it's but you think about the institution and you want it to survive and you want it to thrive but you also have to evolve Mm. so you know, I don't want Westward to be about me, and I don't want Westward to be about 1977. I want Westward to be about the Denver today and what we can do to connect people who live here with what's going on, both the good and the bad. And you have to evolve. And I think tattered, go- and you go through growing pains. We've certainly had people had people who complain about what we do and the fact that we're not a big print publication anymore. You know, we're about a third of the number of pages we used but to be. But who is? Right, exactly. <laughs> but we have an online presence and we're putting up 20 stories a day. A lot of people don't like it that we do that, hmm. that we're not just 
a slow, long, 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 long story paper. So changes happen and people do complain. But the goal is to keep the institution alive and make it make Denver better because of it. And I think that's what Tattered is working on. That's what all these long, Casa Bonita, when you think about, you don't want to lose those old places, but you really would like to better food. Yeah, to improve them. I think that idea of keeping things frozen in amber is something that we struggle with as a city. And I've always thought it's because so much of us changes all the time that people really grab onto those things that they care about and they're frustrated when they change. But Patty, that's a great point. You can't, you can't, it's not 1977. It's 2022. What does tattered cover look like in this day and age? It has to change. You want it to change ethically and you want it to be fair. And if they have made some missteps, you hope they, and who doesn't make missteps, you then uh, go back and fix what you need to do and then move on. But you have, you just cannot stay the same. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I wanted to say one thing before we move on. There was a part of this story where Kyle was talking about the attrition rate for employees, for these uh, employees that are coming on and making these minimum wage salaries at Tattered Cover. And some of these people have been have had a bad experience with the transition. And, uh, and he quotes Kwame Spearman saying that he would argue that our attrition is actually still lower than what a standard retail operation is. And I think that the story, you know, if I were to make one criticism of this story, I thought it was great reporting. I think that the framing of this point in particular was a little bit off because I did a little bit of research about what what Kwame's talking about, and there are numbers for this. So Kyle says that the attrition rate at Tattered Cover in the last couple of years has been 15% for full-time workers and 28% for part-time workers, turning over year by year. Now, according to the National Retail Federation, average employee turnover across all industries is 19%. And in retail, it's above 60%. So it's not just Kwame arguing this point. There, there are statistics, and based on the stats that Kyle reports, the tattered cover seems to be doing better than average in terms of retaining employees. I mean, we're, we're looking also at a time when people are leaving their jobs, I mean, I don't think that it's unique to tattered cover. Um, also, as a person coming from 15 plus years of retail, it's a it's an underappreciated profession. It's not treated as a profession anymore in the same way that it used to be. It's not valued as a profession. And so I think, especially from the folks that I just know who have worked in retail for probably 20 years, I've seen a lot of my friends leave it. And so I, I think that to me, it's probably just part of a lar- part of a larger shift. Yeah, I can't help but think about the King Super Strike. Of course, as a part of this conversation, workers realizing their power. Such well, realizing their power and realizing how bad their jobs are in yeah. some cases yeah. with yeah. King Supers. You think about during the pandemic, where you are putting putting your health at risk, where when you're having personal contact, but then personal contact is also one of the things that can make retail work enjoyable. Imagine at the Tattered where you're not really talking to people all the time, the customers who come in and love it because there are not that many people going out. So it's definitely changed those yeah. jobs. I would think actually, if I'm looking at, at a Westward Editorial, our attrition has been higher than uh, 18%. Really? This, well, Kyle left. Um, so Kyle left, Mark Antonation, our food editor left, mm. Helen Thorpe left after one day. But what I have to say is, if you they can't drop that, Patty, yeah, you and not talk, talk about, about it. it. Oh, I'm sure. I mean, Helen, who is one of the 
greatest writers. Her books are wonderful. And she just realized the pace here is not what she wanted. I mean, yeah. she's been writing books for 20 years, and it, that's a tricky, tricky transition. Well, and talking about running 20 stories a day. Right, exactly. She, now, our news editor doesn't have to do all 20, but sure. I can tell you, it's a, it's a it's very a different pace. Yeah. Uh, if any listeners haven't read Helen's book, The Newcomers, about the English as a Second Language program at South High School, please do it. You will see a different it. side of Denver and learn something about this city that you do not know. I guarantee it. That book is so splendid. And one of the things I loved is we read it. Well, I read it. I gave it to my mother. And then she read it in her book club at her senior center. And Helen came and spoke to her book club. Oh, that's awesome. That's one of the things you love about Denver. That you would have this author come talk to, you know, 40 people in the days when you could have 40 people in a room, but about her book. So not just at the tattered cover where she also spoke, but... People care about books. That is one of the things you love about Denver. People read. Hmm. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Wine Board. Because the wine community here is like surprisingly robust. I mean, think about Bigsby's Folly and Infinite Monkey Theorem here in Denver alone. And there are urban wineries all across the Front Range. Then there's the Western Slope, Peonia, I mean, Palisade, hello, Palisade Wine, are you kidding me? It didn't used to really be a thing, but from what I hear, it's very much a thing now. There are more than 165 wineries across Colorado to explore, and they produce all sorts of wine that reflect our unique culture and climate. So finding a label that you're going to love is easy, no matter where your adventure takes you. Discover it for yourself and support local winemakers at coloradowine.com. That's coloradowine.com. We've got another really juicy topic here. I know you two are both going to have strong feelings about this. Uh, this was kind of a hot story a couple years ago, uh, but this week we got new details, courtesy of the Denver Business Journal, about what's happening with Tom's Diner, mm-hmm. the Colfax Googie Architecture Institution. Um, if you've ever walked down East Colfax, you know the building. It's got the weird zigzaggy rooftop eaves thing. Um, and according to the Denver Business Journal, they have begun construction on a new phase for what that building is going to be. Um, apparently, Tom and some architects and a whole group of people are working on making it into a bar called Tom's Starlight, which will be a, quote, modern oasis in the city. <laughs> Alexander, maybe we can get some music on under this because this is going to get better. The interior diner counter is going to be a cocktail bar. The large parking lot out back will be a garden with trees, plants, fire pits, cabanas, and an outdoor bar. Tom says he wants to create a Palm Springs or 1970s era Las Vegas pool vibe in the (laughs) middle of downtown Denver. Doesn't that sound nice though on a nice winter day, on a cold winter day like this? No, actually, I would say it does not. So this is such an interesting story because it's like it's an institution. What do you do with the old diners, which I know Bree and I both love? Colfax, another evolving thing. How do you keep it going? And on top of it, what happens when someone who owns a, a business needs to retire, needs the money? And this is what they have. So with Tom's, it wasn't just a matter of Tom's diner closing. 
But the fact that he wanted to be able to sell it and it had a lot more value demolished as a valuable lot on Colfax than it would as a former white spot built in 1969. Yeah, and Patty, can you actually explain a bit about what happened with that preservation fight around Tom's Diner a few years ago? Just in case listeners aren't familiar. Uh, what happened is, so Tom was fighting to be able to have it to sell his building and have it demolished because that way he could retire and have money. He didn't want to run a diner on Colfax for the rest of his life. And it's not uncommon for a lot to be worth more as a scrape. That's pretty common. Especially on Colfax. They yeah. were looking at what an eight-story apartment residential building. Mm-hmm. And then Historic Denver stepped in and actually managed to broker a deal with a developer that would be willing to keep the building, pay Tom some money. Uh, the, the fact that Tom wanted to stay and run it is kind of the new news in I this. I thought that was interesting. And run mm-hmm. it as this new Vegasy place instead of as an old diner. That's all new news. But preserving the architecture was one of the big issues because Denver Diner, all the other places we've lost, that whole googie architecture, there are only a few examples of it still in town. Yeah. Bastions. That yes. I think the criticism here that I've heard is um, they weren't, they didn't end up building that eight-story building, which would have been more housing, um, in part because it was too expensive. Um, and I, I mean, I think that that's just an issue with development in general right now. Is materials are expensive, labor is expensive. There's a labor shortage. There's all these sorts of things. So, while it wasn't probably ideal in some people's eyes, um, I mean, I'm so-so on this concept personally. I don't care about bar. I mean, we have so many bars. Do we need another bar? Do we need another diner? Yes, we do. But Tom didn't want to run a diner anymore. And you want to run something that makes money? Sell alcohol. (laughs) Like, you're going to make more money than running. Restaurant margins suck. But keeping the interesting architecture that shows the different eras of, of Colfax, that was important. And they came up with a solution. And that was an astonishing win-win. I'm and we don't see a lot of those. Yeah. Well, I, I see the win on the one side. I see the preservationists thinking about this as a win. They, the architecture is going to stay. But like the, the housing density people, like the sell it and develop it. and Sure. I see, I see that side as well. It'll be built at some point. It'll be built around it. That Palm Springs pool may go. You when, never know. When Tom Starlight twinkles its last. Tom Starlight is not ever going to be on the historic preservation list for the pool, <laughs> I don't think. It just sounds like a lot of Colfax 50 years ago, right? When we it was the main way to get into the city of Denver. So that's why you see so many hotels and motels along both ends of Colfax. Is That's how people were coming into Denver before I-25. So there were all of these oasis in the cities type it sounds like that without the hotel Mm. aspect well and one of the win-wins the city is building affordable housing in an old um i can't remember what the name of it was but it was a 50s restaurant that then became pt's the strip club oh sure and then yeah and now it's going to be housing so yeah and that's that's housing for folks with traumatic brain injuries Hmm. so Hmm. there's lots of places to develop it's just a matter of um the money and the interest and, you know, we've talked about affordable housing before. It's hard to build. Mm. So, And then even expensive housing is really easy to make ugly. Yes. Hello, Brighton <laughs> Boulevard. <laughs> um, I don't well, want to talk about Brighton Boulevard. <laughs> all right. Well, I think that's a good spot to, to wrap up. Um, we have, I have one thing uh, before we go. Fried chicken. 
listeners, we're going to work, we're working on something, something new. We're trying to figure out who makes the best fried chicken in the city and we want your help. So, uh, uh, as a vegetarian, I'm going to sit this one out. We're going to bring in a ringer instead, and we want to hear from you. Where should my intrepid and hungry colleagues go to eat? Where is the best fried chicken in Denver? Call, let us know. Our number is 720-500-5418. Leave us your name, your neighborhood, and your pick for the best fried chicken in the city. Patty, while we have you, have to get your take. Where's your favorite fried chicken? I have to say, I'm very partial to the post. A recent, of course, yeah. of course. Well, and on one's going uh, in around the corner from my house. So uh, it's like it, on South South Broadway. South of Broadway. It started in um, in Lafayette in an old VW post, which is why it has the name. But it's gluten free. It's crunchy. It's great. I used to love Capri fried chicken on Welton, and at least the Welton Street Cafe is try. That's great fried chicken too. We just ran a list of fried chicken places. Oh, cool. And now we have the bastardization with the hot chicken, so you've got to be this careful. It's very different, yeah. <laughs> well, we'll have to consult that list as we uh, put together our, our finalists. Um, and listeners, stay tuned for that in a few weeks. Patty, thanks so much for joining My us. My pleasure. Thanks for coming. Thanks, Patty. This is great. That's all for the week here on CityCast Denver. Our producers this week were me, Paul Caroli, and Xander McMahon. Peyton Garcia writes our morning newsletter. Bree Davies is our host. Our music is by Los Mocochetes with additional mixing by Tyler Lindgren. If you haven't already, subscribe and rate the show five stars wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at CityCast Denver. Tell a friend next time you see him. Maybe you have a conversation about your favorite fried chicken or what you'd like to see at that Tom's Diner lot. Of course, we'll be following that story as it develops in our daily newsletter, and you can sign up for that and learn more about us at denver.citycast.fm. Stay warm this weekend, everyone. Hi, my name is Mark, and I live in Harvey Park right near Florida and Sheridan. And I uh, wanted to talk about the the hate that Boulder gets. And I, I grew up in Boulder, and then I went to college out in Gunnison, and then I moved back to Denver because I needed a job. But uh, having grown up in Boulder, I kind of get the hate, and I kind of don't. It's uh, it's just another world. It's It's got more money than sense, but their bus system was amazing to grow up with for a kid who didn't have a car. Uh, that's about it. Unfortunately, I can't say anything about the planes because I've never spent much time there. Love the show. Bye-bye.